across the country are back in session. And this fall, the spotlight is very much on trans issues in the classroom. Saskatchewan and New Brunswick have come out with recent policies for parental consent on student pronoun changes. And the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has launched a lawsuit saying such policies violate the Charter and human rights. Add to that, today, some parents will be marching in a cross-Canada protest against what they call gender ideology. My guest on the podcast today has been reporting on these issues for years, and she has thoughts on how we might inject some nuance into this polarized conversation. Katie Herzog is an American journalist and host of the Blocked and Reported podcast. Katie Herzog is my guest today on Lean Out. Katie, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to have you on, and the timing is quite good. As I was mentioning to you, it is it is Gender Equality Week here in Toronto with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeting about it. And the culture war over trans issues has really come to Canada in recent months with new school policies from Saskatchewan and New Brunswick on parental consent around student pronoun changes, legislation promised, and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association launching a lawsuit saying these policies violate our charter and human rights. In the meantime, the Leave Our Kids Alone march is this week planned as a million-person march um, against what they call gender ideology and overtly sexual material in school. So we've also seen protests in recent months around these same issues from parents, including both Muslim parents and Christian parents. Uh, You are one of the earlier journalists in America to tackle trans issues with a reported piece in The Stranger in 2017 that talked about detransitioners, people who have regretted their decision to transition. This is a taboo subject then, remains one now. Uh, For people who may be new to you and your work, I know you've talked about this a lot, but can you just give us the Coles Notes version of the fallout from that piece? Yeah. So as you mentioned, this piece was in 2017. So it's um, sort of wild to watch what has happened six years later. A million people marching in the streets in Canada. I think this issue will be also um, the issue, one of the issues, at least uh, when it comes to the American next American presidential election. I'm very much looking forward to uh, President Biden being asked uh, what a woman is. Uh, so this article in, in 2017 um, it was really a, a profile of, I can't remember, maybe six detransitioners. And I took pains to sort of, um, I guess the word I would use now is virtue signal. I wouldn't have used that at the time, but to sort of uh, show that I personally care about trans rights, you know, and in favor of trans people having the right to transition, trans adults at least. And that didn't really matter. The piece was was received very poorly um, despite all of the the hedging that I did to to make sure everyone knew that how I sort of personally felt about this issue, um, and it was the reaction was it was crazy. It was exactly what you would sort of expect. Uh, besides the online stuff, this was in in Seattle, so a lot of the reaction was offline. So there were stickers posted around Seattle calling me a turf and a transphobe and a bigot. Later, there was another edition of the sticker that called me a Jordan Peterson apologist. That one was uh, even more embarrassing. Um, They put up pictures of my face. There were flyers around town sort of calling me out. I had lots of 
backlash from my own community. I'm gay and, and most of my friends for the past 20 years have been, you know, in the the queer community. And they almost without fail, almost every one of them sort of exited the friendship without without much uh, much explanation, um, because I think it became politically difficult for them to be associated with me. And so the fallout has really impacted me personally, even six years later. That said, it was great for my career. Uh, sometimes I think that I should send the people who put up the stickers calling me a, a transphobe a fruit basket because they certainly called more attention to the piece. Uh, but yeah, it's been really interesting to watch how this has all unfolded over the past few years. I would not have have expected six years ago when I wrote this to, for this to be the sort of culture war issue of the moment. But here we are. Mm. And interestingly, Marcy Ian, Canada's Minister of Women and Gender Equality and Youth, recently called this issue of parental consent and pronouns a life or death issue. Um, it's it's very difficult to assess the arguments being made when the stakes are so high. So on on yep. the one hand, people believe that any criticism of trans activist program is a suicide risk for youth. On the other hand, we have people warning about irreversible medical interventions on minors who they say are not developmentally mature enough to give consent. I really don't know how to have a reasonable conversation about this issue when the stakes are so high. How do we turn the temperature down on this? And has anyone on either side of this debate managed to have a reasonable public conversation about these issues so far? It's really difficult to do, and I think in part because rhetoric like this, like calling this a life or death situation, a lot of activists tend to parrot these lines about, uh, you know, there's this this sort of trope, I'd rather have a, a trans son than a dead daughter or something like that. And this is not actually in line with what we know with the data that we have about rates of transition, I'm sorry, rates of suicide among among trans youth. So there's a lot of fear mongering and, and hyperbole on the part of activists that I think makes things much, much worse. There's also a lot of, uh, and that's on the pro-trans side, on the, for lack of a better term, anti-trans side, there's also a lot of fear-mongering and, 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 uh, and hyperbole talk about grooming, uh, things that really do border on, I think, transphobia and, and bigotry, this idea that gay people or trans people are out to, to molest your kids. That's what grooming means. And people have tried to redefine the term to mean something in line with ideological indoctrination. But using that term grooming, I think, really preys on, on people's fears. So I think activists on both sides are really to blame for making making the situation much worse. And politicians as well. There's this sort of, in the States at least, there's this sort of this seesaw happening where a state like Oregon will pass a law saying that, you know, 15 year olds can get access to to hormones or puberty blockers without parental consent. Texas will then pass a, la a law banning it entirely, you know, and then California passes a law in reaction to that. So things are there's just extremism on both sides of this issue. And it's really, as you said, it's really hard to have a sort of moderate centrist conversation about this because the rhetoric on both sides is so heated and so hyperbolic. And uh, as for how to improve that, I don't really know. I think that what we should be doing is looking at the data, the studies we have, unfortunately, on things like regret, uh, suicidal ideation. A lot of the studies are really flawed. And I host a podcast with the writer Jesse Single, and he's one of the few journalists who really looks into the studies on this. A lot of the studies are pretty terrible and they don't say they don't find what what activists 
think that or pretend that they that they actually find. Uh, and so when you went, when you look into when you actually look into the data, what we find is that we actually don't know a lot about outcomes when it comes to youth. I think that's the first the first step though is to really look at the data and uh, and try to evaluate it neutrally and and proceed from there. You know, I, I sort of fault liberals for this sort of in the U.S. You know, there's this idea that we follow the science. Well, it turns out we don't always follow the science. We follow the science when it aligns with our, our political beliefs. Mm. And I, I do want to come back later in the conversation to the groomer rhetoric, because I'm quite concerned about that as well. But um, but first, related to the extremism in this conversation, you have the vast majority of journalists, as far as I can tell, unwilling to wade into this issue. And then the handful that do sometimes tend to, to read as a bit fixated on this issue. What is going on with that dynamic? Well, I think, you know, this is something that Jesse in particular, my co-host, is often accused of being sort of fixated on this issue. And I don't think that's entirely fair in, in his case because he he's fixated on lots of different issues. Um, don't get him started on video games. Uh, or sandwiches. Yes, yes, or sandwich, or pizza, any cargo shorts, any ar- array of things he gets fixated on. Um, but this is a really fascinating issue from a journalist's perspective. So it's you've got issues of of new medicine, of consent, of changing gender roles and norms. Just the idea at all that someone could change sex. It's fascinating. I think there's a reason that that sex changes have fascinated people for decades, you know, uh, going back to the 1950s. And then, of course, during the sort of Jerry Springer era where daytime talk hosts would have the, you know, the the shocking revelation that someone's girlfriend was born a man or something like that. I think there is something inherently interesting about the idea that somebody could actually change sex. And then for journalists, you know, there's a real there's a real wealth here of 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 angles to look into. And I think that's part of why I find it so interesting. I think for Jesse, part of it is just that the science is really is really unsettled. It's unknown. And if you're a science journalist, that's a that's just a really to being on on sort of the forefront of this this new medicine that has such serious implications for people and is being practiced in some in in some ways without good data. It's really I think it's really just a, a fascinating story. Mm. And another criticism that I've heard when I have waded into this topic is that I need to be, this is critics talking, I need to be careful that my criticisms don't get co-opted by actual hate groups. How do we ensure that our journalism doesn't get hijacked by bad actors? I don't think that's the journalist's responsibility. And this is something I, I, I did in my transition, my piece about detransitioners. I wrote about that issue. I wrote about how detransitioners that I interviewed were concerned about their their stories being uh, being hijacked by the conservative right in order to to make arguments against trans people seeking medical care. So I did it in that sort of way. It didn't make a difference to my critics at all. But but further, I really don't think that it's the resp- that's it's the journalist's responsibility to uh, we can't control what happens to our work after we publish it. I don't think it's our responsibility to. And I think being overly concerned about that, you have a chance to censor yourself. 
And if you're reporting on something, I think the journalist's duty is to tell the truth, to reflect the world as close to reality as possible. And I think if you get overly concerned about what's going to happen later, it becomes really difficult to do that. So this is something that I've sort of stopped caring about in recent years. And I have the luxury of not caring about it because I'm I host a podcast. I am funded by our listeners. I don't have to worry about uh, co-workers complaining, complaining to me or trying to get me fired anymore. I don't have to deal with that. So it's certainly a luxury. Uh, it's, that's my, the position of privilege that I, that I have a independent podcaster privilege. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I think it gets in the way of good, of good journalism to, to worry too much about, uh, about how your, your work is going to be interpreted by bad actors later on. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Actually, I think it just is an untenable position to take as as anyone with any kind of public um, life at all. But um, I want to talk about a few other trends in the the gay rights movement as well that I've been watching and thinking a lot about. And another one is the sort of disappearance of lesbians. Um, I know you came out when you were 20 and I've I've heard you talk about living through when it was stigmatized and then it became you know, in our lifetime, it became normalized. It's an it's an absolutely normal thing for same sex people to get married, but now you're seeing this whole other movement, this growing backlash from the right that we've talked about, but also this weird hostility from the left against lesbians. Walk us through what's going on in your view with this sort of extinction of lesbians within gay rights movements. Yeah, uh, extinction extinction is probably a word. It is it is a word that I've used. It is certainly hyperbolic. Um, there are still softball teams uh, all over, at least the U.S. Uh, I think that what's happening on the left is that the idea of same sex attraction has been problematized. So this uh, there's this idea now that we are attracted to gender, not sex, and I think there is some truth to that. Uh, like I, you know, I'm a lesbian. I'm more attracted to a trans woman like Janet Mock, like a, a passing trans woman, than I am to a passing trans man like Buck Angel. Uh, so I do think there is some truth to that, but I don't think there's anything problematic about being homosexual, about being same-sex attracted. And I think on the left, what's happening is that this effort, this sort of activist effort to make everything inclusive means that we're all supposed to make our, our beds inclusive. And that means, in fact, sleeping with lesbians are or queer women, I suppose, are uh, supposed to be open to the idea of sleeping with trans women who identify as lesbians. I'm personally not open to that idea. There might be extremely rare, except no, I'm just not interested in that. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with me not being interested in that. And in fact, a few years ago, it would have been it would have been deep, considered deeply misogynistic for somebody to say to a lesbian, "You just haven't met the right dick." Now it's like you just haven't met the right girl dick. It's still deeply misogynistic. So I think that's what's happening on the left. At the same time, there is a trend. Lesbian, it's not cool to be a lesbian anymore. It's cool to be a, to be queer. And this has been this has been happening over the last 15 years at least. It's seen as being a lesbian is seen as sort of a dowdy, old school, turfy. And I think that's sort of an organic process. Things trends, you know, rise and fall. And so there's this, so there's that element as well as the element of of more and more women coming out as trans or coming out as non-binary. So I'm 40. Most of my friends or ex-friends, I guess, in the queer community are around my age, somewhere between like 35 and 50. And the number of them who have come out as non-binary, so we're not talking about kids here, and the number of them that have come out as trans men or non-binary is really, really shocking. Uh, I should keep a spreadsheet at this point. And so there's that that's happening on the left. And then on the right, 
I think what's happening is that in response to trans activism, in response to things like because there was this there was this period for just a little while where like in 2006, I'm from North Carolina. In 2006, North Carolina attempted to pass a bathroom bill, and this would have limited uh, basically the bathrooms that trans people can use in, in public uh, public places. This was hugely unpopular, and there was a huge backlash against this. A bunch of businesses and sports franchises and celebrities and musicians said they weren't going to do business in North Carolina. So there was this big economic impact. And this was this bill was seen as a total failure. Very unpopular. And so there was this moment, and this was right around the time when you had people like Laverne Cox, Transparent, Orange is the New Black, these sort of moments in pop culture, Caitlyn Jenner, these moments in pop culture when trans people were getting more visibility and there was this brief moment of acceptance. And then I think what happened is that trans activists, they pivoted from fighting for things like equal equal access to accommodation, to health care for adults, to employment, all things that they, I think, should be and now are entitled to in the United States. I think they should have equal rights to, to all of us. They pivoted from that to things like trans women in sports and youth transition. And those things are, for a large part of the population, those are untenable positions. And so what we're seeing now is a backlash to this. It's a backlash to the most extreme version of trans rights activism. And the people who are going to be hurt by this are oftentimes are trans people who just want to live their lives, who just want to use the bathroom, who just want to go to work and have a place to live and are not trying to join a women's swimming team, swimming team. Uh, most trans women are not like Leah Thomas. Most people are just trying to live their lives. And so now we're seeing this backlash and it is veering into, I think, real transphobia, real homophobia, fear mongering, leaning into this term groomers, which really gives people the impression. It really leans into the old trope that gay people in particular, gay men in particular are pedophiles. And I find it I find it really gross. Um, so I'm sort of in the middle here where I find the activism on both sides is pretty disgusting and has and has frankly made the world a worse place for the very people that they claim to be trying to support. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned about the groomer rhetoric as well. And and hearing from, you know, older gay rights activists that this reminds them of accusations that they heard against gay men, this predator sort of rhetoric in the 60s. Do you think we're seeing a repeat of that now? Is is that what we're witnessing? I think it's absolutely a repeat of that. Um yeah. It's really, it's really unfortunate. And this, this whole conversation is, of course, happening in other places in the world, other than just North America. And, and gender critical feminism in the UK seems to be more mainstream than it is in the US, and certainly in Canada. Um, perhaps due to the public failure of the Tavistock Clinic, how do you evaluate what's happening in the British conversation and what we might learn from it? Yeah, I think the conversation is much more mainstream. Although now it's it's becoming incredibly mainstream in the, in the U.S. as well. I think the criticism of the active the excesses of trans activism is more mainstream in the U.K. And what this really comes down to is the uh, failed passage of the Gender Recognition Act, which was proposed by the Conservative Party, and I believe 2014. I might be getting the date wrong. That would have made it much easier to. Um, for people to transition, there was they had this sort of onerous process in the UK 
And I think some, you know, I you had to like go before a panel to change your to change your birth certificate and things like that. And they were going to opt into what would essentially be self ID. So if you say you're trans, you're trans, and you have the legal rights to, uh, to all. I mean, let's be real. This is women's spaces. Nobody really cares about trans men and men's spaces. So a trans woman would have legal rights to um, not just bathrooms and changing rooms, but women's prisons, refuges, refuges for uh, for you know abused women, things like that. And that was deeply unpopular within the uh, within the the voting public. There, uh, this ultimately failed because it was so unpopular. A, a large coalition of women came out to a large and very uh, diverse coalition of women came out to oppose this. So I think that's why it was such a uh, handled sort of sort of differently in the UK. This was something that was really debated in the pages of UK papers. Not that this was comfortable at all. I know quite a few people who uh, were sort of bullied out of outlets like The Guardian for voicing what what was, according to their colleagues, the wrong opinion. Although this was the opinion that actually reflected more of the pop uh, more of the public. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think in the UK, I don't know, in the US, the media is very homogenous in the US, especially papers like the New York Times, the sort of elite outlets in the US, very homogenous, sort of educated at the same places, all come from elite backgrounds in many ways. There's not many working people in media in the in the, in the US anymore. It used to be a, a trade, you know, sort of a working man's trade, but it, that isn't true anymore. And so you have these sort of elite enclaves where everybody thinks the same. And that makes it really hard to deviate from from the message. And the message here is very clear, which is trans women are women, clap, clap, clap emoji, and anything, anyone who who disagrees with that or tries to inject some nuance into the conversation is a bigot. I, I want to pull back even further now and just talk about the state of the mainstream media in general. Uh, Christiane Amanpour made a comment recently that we should aim to be truthful instead of neutral. Margaret Sullivan at The Guardian unsurprisingly picked this up and championed it. And it's sort of breathing fresh life into this whole moral clarity debate in media circles. I've talked about this at length. I know you've talked about it in the past too. How do we think through this rejection of the aspiration of objectivity in our work? Yeah, I to me it it is really just if you want to uh lean into this sort of lack of neutrality, be an opinion journalist and be be forthright about that. That's fine. There's a place for that, but I don't think that people who are just reporting from what are supposed to be the the neutral pages of a of a newspaper should lean into that. And the reason is because what did she say? So we should aim to be truthful but not neutral. So whose truth? I don't think that Margaret Sullivan and I are living in the world where the truth is the same. I really don't. And so if that's if that's the case, what you're talking about is is leaning into your bias. And uh, and for for straight reporters, I think you're going to lose. I think you're going to lose the faith of the of the reading public. And we've already seen this. The media is trusted less and less by the day. And, you know, I think you can make an argument that. The media should just be reporters should just be really upfront by their bias because everybody's biased. That's true. Everybody is biased. But, you know, Fox News is upfront with their bias. Do we find them trustful? I don't think so. Yeah. And, and related to that, I know you were following that monk debate in Toronto recently on trust in the mainstream media, which I covered. What an astonishing night to be present for. I'm sure. Oh, my goodness. And just the sort of clash of different views and to watch the trust in the public be lost in real time <laughs> at an event. Yes. 
Um, I've been asking a lot of journalists that come on the show this big question. How how do we regain the trust of the public? Oh, my gosh. That is the impossible question to answer. I don't know. Get a time machine. Uh, go back to the time when there was, you know, three networks, which, you know, I don't know that the trust was warranted then when we only had, had three networks. Um, how do you regain the trust? I think part of it is... By okay, so like the New York Times, the New York Times has recently they have published after several years of basically publishing only the party line, the activist party line on trans issues. Recently, they've done some deep dives into into some some of these issues, and they've really injected some nuance into it. So they have a reporter named Azin Gureshi. Uh, there's Emily Bazelon, who's at the paper as well. There's a couple of others who have written some some really good nuanced pieces about the complexities of the trans debate that is the way to regain my trust is to uh is to do good reporting that actually shows all sides of an issue and they have done that after finally after years of of, of not doing that um so i think that's part of it they've also they've showed a renewed backbone when it comes to supporting their writers like in in 2020 famously the new york times published an opinion piece by US Senator Tom Cotton that called for to called for the US to send in basically send in troops to quell rioting in the streets and the the editorial page uh, the the editor of that section was had to step down from his job and because of the backlash and recently trans activists have really come for these these New York Times reporters who are actually doing the best work on this. And the New York Times has actually started standing by their reporters. So I think that that's the sort of thing to me as a news consumer makes me trust an outlet more. Um, you don't see it at that many other outlets. You haven't seen anything like this at the Washington Post. The New York, uh, sorry, NPR has done really egregiously bad work on the trans issue. Um, so what what would make me trust the media more is just if I heard better reporting, more diverse reporting from these outlets, outlets that actually reporting that actually does try to convey the complexity of these issues and not just repeat whatever uh, Glad tells these reporters to do. And Katie, I want to end uh, on this on sense of humor <laughs> because sure. both you, both you and Jesse, uh, the pandemic was a very extreme time in Canada, and listening to your podcast really helped me so much to just preserve a little bit of a sense of humor about the extreme moment that we were in. And I come from the progressive left, the kind of identity politics focus left is so humorless right now. Mm -hmm. You know, you must be serious. You can't ever poke fun at these massive changes taking place in society or, or so they say. You can see this dynamic playing out in comedy clubs across Toronto. How do we hang on to our ability to laugh and our right to have a sense of humor when things are so serious? Yeah, uh, I think for me, you know, a lot of this shit is really funny and it is funny. Like we're debating, it's it's terrible, but we're debating childhood, like children getting sex changes and like penises and women's on women's swim teams. Like there is some like something darkly funny about this. And, you know, that doesn't take away from the serious nature of it, but it is kind of funny uh, in a weird way. And uh, and I think that I think that people need to or at least should sort of allow themselves to see that and uh, and not feel bad about it when these things strike you as funny and also just refuse to sort of give in to the scolds. I don't want to sound like Jordan Peterson, 
but refusing to give in to this sort of totalitarian mindset that you're not allowed to laugh at things. I mean, one of the things that sort of drove me away from, from, for lack of a better term, like woke identity politics is this idea that some identities are so sacrosanct that we can't laugh at them. And I'm sorry, it is funny if you're calling yourself they, them, or zizem, or like identifying as a furry and acting like that is some sort of human rights issue. It's funny. And and that and that in part is it, I think it drives people away uh, if you're not allowed to to point out sort of the ridiculous nature of of some of these of some of what's happening right now. Like we live on the Internet now. There's a lot of weird, funny shit going on. Um, and so I think the left would be would benefit from embracing that. And And right now, you know, the left of my childhood was a sort of iconoclastic. No, the left wasn't the tattletales, right? The left wasn't the people complaining about rap music and video games. That was the conservative right. And seeing that shift over the past few years has been weirdly destabilizing. And it's also attracting, I think, a younger audience. So you have these young, like, Gen Z Zoomers who are really leaning into this, like, red pill, edgy humor stuff because they see the ridiculousness of it. And that's bringing them away from leftist politics. And as somebody who is actually politically more aligned with the left than the right, I think that's really unfortunate. Uh, and so you don't want to drive people away. And a really good way to drive people away from your from your movement is to be just humorless and scolding. And and you know, if you want to be inclusive, actually embrace humor a little bit. So. And just lastly, coming back to the sort of theme of cancellation, those of us that have been subject to internet pylons, I try to convey this to people. It's like, to me, it's it's far worse than you can possibly imagine and also not so bad in the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, you can always turn off the turn off the computer and walk away. And I think it's a, like the first time is always the worst. It's like your first big breakup, you know, it does feel like the world is ending. And then you get used to it and then you figure out how to mute and move on, which is what I do. And there are ways to protect yourself, you know, like uh, never searching, never name search. I, I would never do anything like that. I'm not a gun for punishment. So there are ways to sort of insulate yourself. There's some downsides to that because you're also insulating yourself from what could be good faith, legitimate criticism. But yeah, I, that's a really good way of putting it. it. It is terrible. It also like it lessens the pain every time. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about these issues in a nuanced way in a very kind of explosive week in Canadian politics. So Katie, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, good luck to Canada. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you'd like to support independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 